1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Chinese officials want to boost the economy of Xinjiang province, developing manufacturing, trade, and tourism. But they also want to continue repressing and co-opting the province's Uyghur minority. Our correspondent reckons those plans are incompatible. And since the very start of The Intelligence, our Bartleby columnist has been railing against the harms of useless meetings, long hours, corporate jargon, and more. Today, he bids us farewell and shares what he's learned about the world of work. But first, If you have occasion for international travel, good luck getting to grips with the restrictions. And cross your fingers they don't change between your departure and your return. According to Britain's inscrutable traffic light system, rules for travelers returning from France loosened this week. For those coming from Mexico, they tightened. East Asia and Australasia are largely locked down. Sub-Saharan Africa mostly open. America still won't take travelers from the European Union. Strict quarantine rules in government-approved facilities, Byzantine testing regimes, outright bans, travel remains out of reach for many and messy for everyone. And not just travelers, of course. It's nightmarish for the economies of tourist spots, for tour operators and airlines, for hotels and restaurants. And the truth is that it's not clear how much good any of these fickle rules are doing.
2: Even. With all those restrictions that have been in place, been removed, a year and a half into the pandemic now, policymakers are realizing something that the scientists have known all along.
1: Avantika Chilcotti is an international correspondent for The Economist.
2: Which is that there isn't a straight line between stricter travel rules and lower case numbers.
1: And what do these restrictions regimes look like broadly?
2: So every country is different, right? You can sort of lump countries into three groups. So one group of countries, most of them are in the Asia-Pacific, they've managed to keep cases under control by both sealing their borders and taking outbreaks at home incredibly seriously. So think of places like Australia. They've often had the lowest case rates, but that's got an economic impact too, The second group, um, including much of Europe and America, they're in the middle. They're edging towards reopening borders. They've got some rules in place, but they're trying to treat COVID as an endemic disease now. The third group of countries is the one that some of us might be most worried about. It includes some of the world's poorest countries. Low-income governments like those in sub-Saharan Africa, they're struggling to get their populations vaccinated. But at the same time, they can't really afford to shut their borders, given what that means for trade and tourism. A lot of people in these countries, say in West Africa, they can travel around the region, but it's much harder for them to get into the rich world right now.
1: And you say that policymakers are rediscovering the point that these different regimes don't have largely different effects on the ultimate numbers of cases.
2: Yeah, so only the very toughest border controls actually work. I spoke to one scientist, Adam Kucharski, who's writing a book on some of this, and he pointed out that whether you import 10 new cases or 100 new cases, given the exponential growth of this virus, it comes to the same thing roughly two weeks down the line. And you see that actually if you take some of the countries that we've mentioned as examples. So say Britain. Britain has a very complicated traffic light system, but it's been really badly hit by the pandemic. More than 87,000 cases per million people here. And that's because of the domestic rules, the fact that some cases have been imported. If you compare Britain to, say, Mexico, which left its borders wide open as a comparison, Mexico has about a quarter of Britain's case rate. And that's pretty striking, even if you consider differences in testing levels in those two countries.
1: So there's not much difference in terms of the strictness of the restrictions. But of course, there are big differences when it comes to the economic effects that those restrictions may cause.
2: Of course. So these travel restrictions come with untold pain and disruption when you hear some politicians talk, you think that people only travel for a holiday to get some sun. But really, people travel for education, for work, to see loved ones. The easiest thing to measure is the economic impact of these restrictions. The US Travel Association reckons that closing the border with the EU and Canada costs the US economy $900 million and $340 million every week, respectively. There's been a bunch of airlines that have declared bankruptcies. Governments have had to bail them out. And you've got to remember that especially in poor countries, tourism and travel is a huge source of employment.
1: So given that imbalance that's becoming clear here, what's the take-home message for policymakers?
2: So I'd say there's basically two big things. One is transparency is incredibly important. If you think of the UK's traffic light system, where the government ranks countries based on their risk into red orange and green categories what industry really wants to know is hey how are you calculating these risk categories can you let us know so we can plan and that's incredibly helpful for the everyday person as well the second thing is really these policies need to be guided by research a lot of countries around the world requires that people use pcr tests just as an example But I looked at one bit of academic research which compared those quick, cheap lateral flow tests to the expensive but more accurate slower PCR tests. And given the delay in getting your results back, it basically makes just as much sense to let people use a lateral flow test. Another example is temperature screening. I've traveled quite a bit in sub-Saharan Africa recently, and you, you often get your temperature taken There's lots of evidence that, given a lot of young people will have asymptomatic cases, it's really not very helpful to check people's temperature. It's a huge cost to install a lot of these scanners, but it doesn't do good. So I'd say the second point is governments really need to be basing their data on research and the facts.
1: And when, if at all, do you think that these messages will come through? What do you think the near-term future of travel looks like?
2: This is sort of an interesting question. A bunch of analysts I've spoken to will say it's not until even 2024 till a lot of the world is vaccinated that travel will look much like it used to in the past. What I'd say is that travel is looking more and more like it did in, say, the 1940s, the 1950s, the 1960s. So whether you have to pay for quarantine facilities or if you have to pay for tests, it's becoming a luxury that not everyone can afford. Also, given there's a rising germophobia, a lot of people are considering, do I need to take a plane or should I plan a road trip or a train trip? So we're seeing differences in how people travel. My guess would be that sort of the three days stag do in Barcelona is out, but people will still spend a lot of time planning, make a lot of investment for those once-in-a-lifetime trips, say, you know, a safari in Zambia or a boat trip, they'll still want to have those experiences, especially after a year and a half locked up.
1: And then beyond that?
2: So I reckon in the medium term, the thing to remember is that it's easier to make a rule quite often than it is to roll it back. Things that don't make sense, you know, requiring people as a blanket rule to quarantine, or even requiring people to show test results after a while, these things could stick. And there is precedent for that. You know, America's ban on travelers with HIV or AIDS was introduced in the midst of an epidemic in the 1980s, but it was only abolished in 2010 after years of protest.
1: Thanks very much for your time, Ivanka.
2: Thanks for having me, Jason.
0: As a foreigner, especially as a foreign reporter, as soon as you arrive, you know that Xinjiang is a police state.
1: In his final sojourn as our Asia economics editor, Simon Rabinovich recently visited Xinjiang.
0: I arrived on a big crowded airplane before any of the passengers could disembark. They stopped them from getting off and then the flight attendant showed me personally to the front of the plane where there was police waiting to question me. After that, going around Xinjiang, especially when you're in the south of the region, uh, which is home to most of the Uyghurs, you have checkpoints everywhere. Every time you enter a new town, even enter a new neighborhood, you have to get registered. At the same time, though, it is, despite all that, more relaxed than it was a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, You had heavily armed cars, heavily armed police officers, paramilitary officers standing at almost every corner. You know, it almost felt like it was in a state of war. These days, it's a much more subtle presence. You've got the region absolutely blanketed in security cameras, some that kind of rotate and follow you as you're walking past them.
1: Communist Party officials used to insist that social harmony in Xinjiang could only be achieved by developing the region's economy. But then, in 2014, they began to argue that stability was the route to economic development. For them, stability meant the repression of the Uyghurs, a mostly Muslim ethnic group. A million Uyghurs have been thrown into camps for re-education. The rest placed under high-tech surveillance. And now that it views the situation as stable, the Communist Party has turned its attention back to economic matters.
0: You can really divide the economy into two halves. The northern half is home to all kinds of different energy resources, big oil fields, gas fields, lots of solar plants as well. The southern half, though, is much more agrarian. Traditionally, it's had much more informal employment. And that's also where the vast majority of the Uyghur population resides. And if you look at the government's latest economic plans for Xinjiang, they're really focused on the development of the south.
1: And what exactly is in those plans?
0: I mean, for the government, the point of economic development is that if they succeed, they will hold it up to the world as a validation of their extremely repressive approach to blanketing Xinjiang with its massive security presence. So what they're doing is they're trying to build up the low-end manufacturing sector in southern Xinjiang. Now, Xinjiang is already a massive producer of cotton. It accounts for about 20% of the world's supplies of cotton. What the government is now trying to do is to build on top of that an entire textile sector. So, of course, for foreign observers looking at what's going on in Xinjiang, this also fits very closely with all of the repression that has been extensively documented uh, over the last five years in Xinjiang. How so? A lot of the factories are based on what appears to be forced labor. Testimonies of victims who've been able to get out of Xinjiang indicate that, you know, once they make it through re-education camps, they're effectively placed into apparently infinite probation where they have to take whatever jobs are assigned to them, uh, the jobs that are assigned to them tend to be in things like textile factories. If they put a foot wrong, they'll find themselves back into the prison system.
1: But we've spoken on the show before about attempts by countries outside China to basically switch off the tap of products that are coming out of Xinjiang because of this forced labor concern. Is that not undermining the economic plan here?
0: Well, indeed. So there's a bill that's now working through Congress in America. It's been passed by the Senate that will ban any product from Xinjiang that cannot be proven to not consist of forced labor as an input. But China, of course, is aware of this. And so you see that on the one hand, it's investing very heavily to develop the infrastructure within Xinjiang. So doing a lot to connect the south to the north. And then they're building all kinds of trade corridors into Central Asia, which, of course, shares a border with Xinjiang. You know, one of the textile parks that I went to, I asked one of the managers about the impact of American sanctions And he just laughed it off and he said, look, at all of our products are going to Kazakhstan and Pakistan. They don't care. And so for China, this is really part of its strategy is to kind of orient Xinjiang away from the West and towards China's domestic market and towards Central Asia. And of course, the additional benefit of all this infrastructure is that it supports the development of the tourism industry in Xinjiang.
1: Because Xinjiang is, is already a tourist spot?
0: It is a huge tourist spot. If you look at gross tourism revenues for the region as a whole, it already accounts for about 25% of its GDP. And the government plans to double that, in fact. Mm. More than that, though, it also serves political objectives. It's a way of showcasing the region to the rest of China, basically normalizing what the government's security apparatus is there. And then also, even for foreigners, Using it as something of a showcase. And that was something that I saw again when I was there. It so happened that my trip coincided with a visit from a series of consuls general based in Shanghai. Visiting Xinjiang. When I went to Kashgar, which is the biggest city in, in southern Xinjiang, traditionally the religious and spiritual home of, of the Uyghurs, there was this cluster of consuls general from Serbia and Cuba and Belarus and even Singapore who were there at the entrance to the city. Oh, 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 oh. And the government had about 30 Uyghurs dressed up in very bright, not exactly traditional, but sort of looking like traditional clothes, singing and dancing and welcoming them. You know, it felt more like a show at Disneyland than, you know, an ancient Uyghur city. But that's what the tourism push is doing to the region. And for the government, it's a way of presenting this very manicured, carefully curated vision of Xinjiang and of the Uyghurs to the outside world.
1: So what's your take on whether all of these economic plans will play out by building up manufacturing and textiles, all of these travel and trade corridors, and selling a false version of of the Uyghur story?
0: I think in the coming years, we're going to see some very strong growth figures out of Xinjiang, just because so much money is flooding into the region right now. If you look at investment last year in factories and roads, It increased by nearly 20% year on year faster than any other part of China. But this trade-off between the suffocating security presence and the potential to actually have a vibrant economy, that trade-off is already beginning to reveal itself. So a lot of the wealthiest Han Chinese have left the region because life there is is so constricted on a day-to-day basis. People there claim that upwards of half of the population has left And then in the south, in the Uyghur heartland, the kind of development that is being done by the government is very, very forced. There's limits on what people can do, where they can work. And so my overall view is that, you know, in the short term, things will look okay. But in the long term, this is not a formula for successful economic development, much less for a a happy society.
1: Simon, thanks very much for your time.
0: Thank you, Jason.
1: Bartleby, the Scrivener, is the title character from an 1853 short story by Herman Melville, and he's about as unhappy as an employee can get. He was once productive, but he's been ground down so much that no matter what he's asked to do, the response is the same.
3: I would prefer not to.
1: That might resonate with lots of office workers and their managers, Which is why, three years ago, Bartleby was the name given to The Economist's column on work and management. Today, Philip Coggan, its inaugural columnist, is handing over his quill pen to a new scrivener.
3: I started to write Bartleby in May 2018, and now that I am set to retire, it's a good moment to reflect on what the column has covered over the last three years, and a number of lessons that stand out. The first is that it's incredibly difficult to measure what managers do, and that leads to all kinds of problems. The second is that the nature of management has shifted from command and control to that of coach. And the third is that so much has changed about the workplace that employees have needed to be incredibly flexible over the last 30 or 40 years.
1: Okay, let's take those in turn. Why is it so hard to measure how well a manager is performing?
3: We know that managers do good work, we know that they work hard, but it's very hard to measure what they actually achieve. And I think this is part of the problem and one of the themes that I've written about consistently in Bartleby, that because it's hard to define, managers tend to use jargon and they tend to call lots of meetings. The jargon is because, A, it's hard to define, and B, because by knowing the jargon, you kind of demonstrate your expertise and show that you're worth the post of manager. And the calling the meetings is often showing that you're actually doing something. You know, it's hard to say what you do in the course of a day as a manager, but if you've had five meetings, everybody goes, poor you.
1: Okay, and what's lesson two?
3: Management as a science really came about in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And that was all about command and control, making sure people shifted widgets or pressed machines a certain number of times an hour. But the modern economy is much more service-based than manufacturing-based, and command and control doesn't really work. A lot of what we're trying to achieve is harder to define. It's about creativity. It's about coming up with ways of collaborating with our colleagues. It's about finding ways of communicating with customers. As a result of that, just telling people what to do all the time is not the right approach. And the modern approach more and more is this idea of coaching. There was a famous coach in Silicon Valley called Bill Campbell that advised many of the top technology companies. And that's really all about the manager as encouraging the best out of their team, a sort of Gareth Southgate, to use the England football analogy. He has to have all authority over the team, but he's not telling them what to do all the time. He's trying to discover their strengths and get them to build on those strengths to achieve the best results for the company.
1: And your final lesson is that workers need to be more flexible. I imagine that's the the voice of experience speaking. How has the world of work changed in, in your career?
3: When I started work in 1980, you had no personal computers. It was so dependent on paper that you needed paper clips, a stapler, you needed Tippex just to get through the working day. Everything has changed over the last 40 years. We've had to get used to so many new technologies, technologies that have come and gone, like the pager and the facsimile. At the moment, we have to sort of switch between apps all the time. You need to know how to mute yourself on Zoom and how to raise your hand in Zoom or how to handle documents in Dropbox and how to communicate in Slack and on all the rest of it.
1: You have to know how to talk on a podcast.
3: Podcasts have come and are flourishing. Blogs have kind of come and gone. I was writing a blog in 1999, of all things. We've become much more global as companies. So you need to learn to deal with customers in different countries. You need to learn to deal with colleagues in different countries. And also, we've had much-changing mores. When I started working at the FT, it was quite common to go to a lunch where people would have white wine with the first course, red wine with the main course, and then port afterwards. Drinking at lunchtime, was relatively common, but that's all gone away. And the kind of laddish humour that existed in other offices now quite rightly frowned upon. So you've really had to be flexible to survive over the last 30 or 40 years. And one of the reasons that I'm retiring is it's easy to recognise that you get less flexible as you get older. Better to stop before you become a complete caricature of a grumpy old man.
1: You might have just a bit of time left before becoming too grumpy. Are you sure I can't convince you to stick around for a bit longer?
3: There is always the risk that you cease to recognize how grumpy and self-obsessed you've become. So I could go on longer, but like my fictional namesake, I would prefer not to. Philip,
1: thanks one last time for your time.
3: Thank you, Jason, for having me on The Intelligence all these years.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. This week, the show's editors are Kim Gittleson and Chris Impey, and the sound engineer is Saul Rivers. Our senior producers are Hannah Mourinho and Sam Colbert. Our producer is William Warren, and assistant producers Jason Hoskin and Abisoye Oshindairo, with extra production help this week from Dan Ashby, Kevin Kaners, John Joe Devlin, and Elna Schutz. We'll all see you back here on Monday.